Welcome to another edition of Garden Talk. Hi, Larry Miller here. Today we talk about native plant gardening in the fall season. Susan Carpenter back with us. She's the native plant garden curator at the UW-Madison Arboretum. And great to have her with us. We'll also talk about what's happening at the Arboretum and take your questions and comments, of course. What would you like to know about adding native plants to your landscape? problems with the natives you have. Join in your, uh, with your comments or questions. You can call us at 800-642-1234. It's 1-800-642-1234 or send an email to ideas at wpr.org. Ideas at wpr.org. And Susan Carpenter, well, welcome back. Good to have you with us. Well, it's good to be here, Larry. You know, I was taking a look at some of my native plants this morning, uh, once again, and my purple cone flowers, for example, have now taken on, uh, have lost that bright purple. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yes. Are, uh, and they're now, the petals are turning a little more grayish, I guess. So that that's one change I'm... I'm I'm noticing in mine. What's happening in native gardens at this time of the year? Well, uh, this has been an interesting year because, of course, we've had a drought for most of the summer. So uh, we are, though, seeing a lot of flowering in the in the gardens, especially in the genus Silphium, which includes our big prairie dock and compass plant and our rosin weed, uh, just a sea of yellow right now. It's partly because some of the other plants were suppressed or kept shorter because of the drought. But uh, yeah, I notice you, we, we've noticed those little shifts now in August. <laughs> There's always those little shifts to fall. Um, and hopefully you'll be able to get some seeds from your cone flower, those those yeah. structures in the center. You'll, you'll be able to harvest those in a few weeks. Yeah. You see any? Do you have dogwood, uh, dogtooth daisy out there? Uh, no, I don't know that one. Oh, okay. I thought it was a a, a native, and I I didn't. I don't it have it. It might be I, a different. It might be. A, I might not know it by that name. If it if it is, sometimes the common names can be there can be multiple common names. So I'm not sure about that. Yeah, one. Helenium. Uh, I forget Helenium something or other. <laughs> oh, is it the uh, same one as called sneezeweed with little? Yes. Yep. Okay. Yes, we do have that one. Um, it's a it's a great tall plant for this time of year. Kind of, uh, I mean, during a drought, it's not as quite as big because it's uh, it likes a little more moisture, like stream sides and a little bit like we have it in a rain garden. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's a very beautiful a beautiful plant, kind of a large one, but uh, but a very nice one for this time of year. Well, uh, what plants should we be uh, planting for fall interest? Well, um, there are lots actually. Um, many of our um, many of our plants are uh, very attractive in the fall. They either have a great fall color, so like a lot of our grasses have a beautiful fall color. Little blue stem uh, for for some reason turns red, so um, that's a beauty. And it's just our last native grass, short native grass. Uh, to, or native grass to bloom, and it's a short native grass. So that one's just coming, just barely coming into bloom now. Um, but we have the the prairie drop seed, which is another uh, short native grass. That one turns a beautiful yellow. And uh, the, um, for example, the 
wild quinine, which is a flower, you know, a plant that has flowers on it during the summer, but it has a beautiful uh, fall color with the on uh, the leaves. So there's so much, and and a lot of the seed heads, you know, as you look at them with the the setting sun of you know the lower sun <laughs> angles and so on of fall they're just so pretty with the backlighting and the grasses too so i don't i can't really give you uh, just one or two for that answer to that question <laughs> john and boaz has a question for you let's go there hi john good morning i was wondering if your guest has any knowledge about the nutritional value of dandelions because they're ripe this time of year <laughs> uh, the well usually um they're well i'll just say for one thing everybody probably um knows this already they're not native plants but they certainly are present everywhere where we where people are um and the leaves have uh, as far as i know i'm not an expert on this at all uh, but the le- the fresh leaves have um, nutritional value, and um, they they're they have a lot of vitamins. And so, so I feel really mostly hear people harvesting them in the spring before the plants have bloomed. But it's a cool season plant, so at this time of year they're sort of starting, especially if we've had a dry period as we've had, and then some rains, uh, that kind of. Um, starts them up on on growth again. So fresh new leaves, I would think, would be the best nutritional value on that. And the more mature leaves would be probably kind of bitter. But if you watch the woodchucks and you watch the rabbits, they'll just sit there and eat leaves one by one off of the plant. (laughs) (laughs) Alex in Monroe, thanks, uh, John. Mm -hmm. Alex in Monroe emailed, just purchased a hobby farm and would like to turn an acre into a native woodland, mostly black walnut and a few struggling pines. The ground is primarily grass and weeds, undesirables. Mm -hmm. How do you even start establishing a native woodland in a relatively large space like this? And once the space is cleared, what native perennials would you recommend planting under the black walnuts with its juglone toxicity Mm -hmm. in mind? Mm-hmm. Well, walnuts, um, we do learn a lot, or we do hear a lot about the juglone um, effect on other plants. And m- quite often we are cautioned about growing vegetables um, and other, you know, garden plants underneath them. But in in woodlands, in, in naturally, you know, natural woodlands, you know, there are walnut trees and there's plenty of other plants growing underneath them. Um, what I would suggest perhaps is... Um, you know, if 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 walnut is the primary um, species of the overstory besides the pines, um, there you know it might be good to if you want a forested area and the site is suitable for that. In other words, the site would be a a good site for um, you know for tree growth. Then uh, might you might consider planting a few other. Um, you know, depending on how shady it is, a few other uh, good woodland, you know, native trees, such as perhaps uh, oak or um, hickory uh, that might go well with, uh, you know, with an area that that has walnut already, and just space them into areas where there's a little more light so that they have success. You know, look for trees that aren't, um, that that are a little bit shade tolerant, you know, so that they can survive coming up in that, um, in that already semi-established 
um, canopy, and then uh, you know then move uh, moving along. Um, it really depends on what kind of site it is. If it's a you know if it's facing north, if the you know if it's on a slope and it's facing north, then I would have you know recommend recommendations that would be more um, you know plants that would be more suitable with an area that has not such you know it's not so warm and it's not so such intense uh, sunlight when it is. Uh, you know, when there is sun on it. Um, and if it's a south-facing slope, then, you know, you kind of go with plants that are more suitable for dry areas. I think it would be really good to have a good sense for what the site is like to start with before, you know, putting a lot of investment into the plants that might go with it. Um, I have, uh, you know, I have an area in mind where there's a north-facing slope and a south-facing slope on the same hill, and the two areas are very, very different from each other. So that's why I'm, I'm, you know, emphasizing the site characteristics first before recommending any plants. Yeah. Well, if you had, uh, I mean, if let's say you've got a south facing, uh, uh-huh. what kinds of plants might work there? Well, you, first of all, you'll find, you probably find uh, some native plants that are already there. And, you know, if it's not, if it's, even if it's been grazed or, you know, had some other kind of land use, there will probably be some native plants that are there, even if they're plants that, you know, really kind of thrive on some disturbance. So I would use those plants as kind of a guide for um, for what to put next or what to add. And you might look for a seed mix. So say it's a dry, a drier site. You might look for a semi-shade um seed mix for drier sites and try that uh, and and try some things you know try it in a certain try a seed mix in a certain part of it you know as kind of an experiment and see what what makes it and what doesn't and and use use the site to help you guide your future um, management you, you know you mentioned planting uh, the trees to you might uh, that he might plant or, or mm-hmm. uh, she might plant mm-hmm. uh, is this a good time to plant trees, shrubs or perennials or whatever? Yeah, um, well, yes and no. Um, It depends. Like right now, if I were here, I'm here in Madison, um, we are scheduled to have about a week now of pretty intense heat with absolutely no rain in the forecast. And given that we're still actually in in drought condition, I wouldn't be um, planting, you know, in an area where I couldn't be watering. I mean, I wouldn't be planting in high, those high temperatures. So as long as the temperatures are moderate, say they're in the seventies or even the sixties, um, you know, you can plant and it doesn't stress, it wouldn't stress the plant too much. Fall is not a bad time to plant, uh, as we get into September because the air temperatures begin to cool, but the soil temperature remains warm and that helps the roots develop. The roots will still be growing, on, you know, later into the fall, then, you know, you're looking at every other plant kind of senescing and and settling down for the, for the winter, but the roots are still going and keeping, um, you know, keep growing. And so it is, it can be a good time to establish. The thing to remember with planting a tree or shrub is if you don't get, you know, assuming that the weather on a certain day is suitable, you know, not too hot, not 100 degrees, 90 degrees, high 80s, um, then you want to make sure you water them in really well uh, the first day, of course. And then if you don't get an inch of rain per week following the initial planting, and this can go on for, um, you know, even into next year, 
you would want to water them, um, you know, water each specimen so that you get a good establishment for that plant. Susan Carpenter, our guest today, native plant garden curator at the UW-Madison Arboretum. You can join in with your uh, questions as well. The number to call is 1-800-642-1234, or you could email us, the email address, ideas at wpr.org. Tyler Ditters, our engineer today, Jill Nadeau, our producer. I'm Larry Mueller for Garden Talk on the Ideas Network. Taking a look at native, uh, the native garden today and some fall changes that are coming your way and mine with Susan Carpenter, a native plant garden curator at the UW-Madison Arboretum. Questions, give a call at 800-642-1234. Email to ideas at wpr.org. Susan, you know that last question about establishing a native um, plants into uh, a wooded area. It reminded me that you have uh, an all-day workshop coming up that that person or others might be interested in. Yeah, we have our Native Gardening Conference. It's an annual conference. It's coming up on September 10th, which is a Sunday. And there's just a few spots left in that uh, registration, you know, up to capacity there. So if anyone is interested in that, it's it's an all-day conference. And we have uh, this year a, a really great, uh, we always have a great great speakers, but this year we have uh, Heather Holm coming to talk about um, creating habitat for native bees and not just the ones that you're thinking of, but all of them. Uh, and she will be our keynote speaker, and then we'll have other workshops on design, on managing a garden, and this would also probably uh, be helpful for people who are doing small-scale restorations, like an acre or so, or you know so, something like that. Um, they, they would probably also find good information here. We're going to have um, in, a workshop or a breakout session on invasive species, on there'll be garden tours. It's a real great day, and our it's all described on our website, arboretum.wisc.edu, and uh, just look up uh, right there on the front page. There'll be Native Gardening Conference, a big banner for it, and uh, we'll be looking forward to um, getting together with everyone. It's always a lot of fun to get all that all that interest and energy in the same in the same building and in the same garden. It's a great that, time of year too to just see everything and how it you know how it comes together. And that's Sunday, September tenth, right? Tenth, correct. So the registration will close before that. Uh, but look at our website because there's really only I think there's less than ten spots left. So don't waste any time. <laughs> don't waste any time. It, you know, it always fills up to capacity. So. Be that last person. <laughs> All right. Uh, Colette in Eagle River has a question for you. Let's go there. Hi, Colette. Okay. Oh, I've got a question about lupines. Now, I live in Eagle River, and a lot of northern areas like this seem to have nice patches of really beautiful lupines. And I'm wondering if those are most likely the native lupines from Wisconsin, or are they the western variety and also... If I wanted, I've been collecting seeds. If I wanted to plant them, uh, when is the what? And I mean, I have a lot. I have right now like a pint. Um, mm. How was the best way to plant them and when? 
Okay. Well, uh, to to determine if you have the native or the non-native ones, um, that would be it. Would be great to see a picture of them. Uh, the the native one is our um, um, Lupinus perennis. So if you want to look that up uh, and see, you know, just wild lupin for Wisconsin and see if it's the same as the ones you're collecting. They're quite different in their appearance. If you have the ones that are fairly tall, uh, very tall, and they have a very um, kind of thick column of flowers, you know, coming up on their flowering um, stalk, then it's probably the non-native ones. And they are actually um, not, it's, it's not recommended to plant them out in the wild because they are now naturalizing and actually becoming kind of invasive. So um, that that's just the word about the non-native ones. As far as when uh, the when seeds would grow or when seeds could be um, planted, the lupin has a very hard seed, like a very tough coat uh, seed coat on it, and they're naturally you can you can always look for. Um, you know, when does the plant naturally release its seed? So for my lupins here in southern Wisconsin, I am looking at them. They're blooming in May, and then their seed pods uh, kind of twist and open when they dry, and they kind of spray the seeds out from there. And when they do that naturally, it's like usually in June. So June is a time when the plant is naturally dispersing its seed, and so those seeds are then waiting until... In fact, in, with lupins, they're, prob- they're waiting probably until the following spring to germinate. Um, some some plants, and I'm pretty sure lupin is one of these, need a cold, moist treatment. And in the case of lupin, they may also need uh, actually to go through that process in order to break the coat down, the seed coat down, so that the little plant, little embryo inside can grow. Um, but you can also, if you look up, if you have the wild lupin, you can look up on a, in a native plant nursery um, website. You can look up the requirements for germination and the timing for germination. So I'm, um, that, that information would be specific to each plant. So I would recommend doing that. For the non-native one or the, the, the um, one that I suspect you might have, that one I don't know um, you know, I don't know much about that as far as the requirements go, but I think it's probably pretty similar. If if it isn't a cultivar that, or you know, some other form that has a you know has different characteristics of the of the reproduction. So there you go. I hope that helps. Colette, thank you for calling. Annie in Dalton will go to you. Hi, Annie. Hi. I don't happen to be home right now, so I'm probably going to butcher this name. I think it's called. Spice bush. It's um, all over out east. It's native out there, but I'm not sure about the upper Midwest. But I would like something to plant on the end of my, the west end of my house by my windows. It's supposed to be a very fragrant bush. Um, it's Lindera mm-hmm. Borzoi or Bozoi or something like that. Mm-hmm. I yeah. can't find a seller in Wisconsin. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Annie, I'm not sure where is Dalton? Which Dalton area of the state? 
we're 15 minutes northeast of Partyville. Um, it's really sandy, so we're on the southern edge of the central sands. Okay. Um, yeah, that plant, in my experience, likes kind of a moist area. So uh, we have it. We have some some growing here that was planted um, in the woods some time ago in one of our lower wo- you know lower woods that has more moist areas. Um, it's an understory, was an understory species. Uh, it's not common because it's really more of a southern species, I believe. So um, that may be why you're not finding sourcing for it in Wisconsin very readily. Um, that said, if you're in sand and you want something, I mean, now that I'm smells to think good. Of, was there something? <laughs> yeah, is there something? <laughs> is there something I could suggest that would be um, that would be suitable for for that spot? You know, of course, it depends. If it's really near your house, it may be it's on the west side of your house. Um, that would be probably kind of a drier area. Or is it sunny there? It's there, so it's dappled. Okay. Dappled. Okay. Hmm. The, that might take me a little. That might take me a little uh, thinking. But if it's not a moist area, I'm not sure the spice bush would be a good would be a good choice. Just you might try it and then find out that it didn't do well. Um, if you tried it and find out it did do well, well, that's okay. But um, <laughs> there, you know, each each little location, especially roundhouses, can be can be quite unique. Um, anyway, I think it's a it's a more southern species out. You know, not not in Wisconsin. So that's perhaps why you're having trouble finding it. Um, maybe if you, I, I, ha, I can't think of anything right off the bat, but I'm sure as soon as Larry and I stop talking today, I'll think of something. <laughs> if you want to email me at the Arboretum, um, maybe I'll have another suggestion by that time, uh, or maybe a source. Any thanks. And, and if you do plant one, uh, you probably need to have the garden hose handy. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, Susan Carpenter, our guest today from the UW-Madison Arboretum. It's great to have her with us. Let's go to Mark in Viroqua next. Hi, Mark. Hey, Larry. Uh, Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. I uh, have a rather large garden. In total, it's about 147 acres. I'm doing prairie restoration and woodland management. And one of the problems I have with my prairie fields is that the stiff goldenrod has gotten overly dominant. So I have been, uh, through my research and conversations with my prairie enthusiasts in Mississippi Valley Conservancy, um, you know, suggested to try to get established things like betony and uh, Indian paintbrush because they're hemiparasitic. Now, with the large areas I'm working with, the you know, the practicality of, um, you know, starting these things from seed myself uh, is not tenable. Um, So is it, do you think it might be worthwhile just doing a fall broadcast and expecting some, um, you know, a lower germination rate, uh, but, you know, using the cold stratification of the winter and keeping the uh, grasses, you know, do a fall burn so that they get early spring sunshine. Uh, so anyway, these are my thoughts, and I would love your input, and I will um, I'll hang with you in case there's any counter questions. Okay. Um, well, is, has a stiff golden – I guess my main question here is, has the stiff goldenrod been trending as, you know, trending – 
over time, you know, over the years, has it been getting more and more common in your spaces there, or is this kind of something that happened this year? It has been trending. I do find that if I mow uh, it down uh-huh. uh, later June, uh, then it kind of knocks it back and lets the grasses get stronger. But then if I miss a burn a uh, year or a mow year, it does tend stronger. So it's something. And plus, which I also want to do, you know, things like I'm, I'm just trying to improve my diversity because I, I started with a DNR recommended uh, basic mix of like 12 grasses and 20 forbs, and I just want to improve all the diversity. And right. Some of the things. Right. Yeah. So it sounds like if you do, you know, it sounds like you're you're kind of doing the right thing, like knocking it back and giving other species a chance to um, to come up. What you might you might try is, uh, you know, in some areas, since you've got a pretty sounds like you've got some pretty big areas, is this is basically experimenting is to like mow down to a really um, low level, right? You know, say now and um, maybe in an area where the stiff goldenrod isn't going to just shed its seeds all into the area and put down, you know, this fall, like mow it way down and then put down a mix on that. I'm just suggesting this to like make some, uh, you know, just increase the diversity of the types of management across the area so that you might have, you know, more things coming in at different, you know, different points. Uh, I think you've, you know, I think you're on. You've got some good strategies there, and it might just take take more time. Uh, my experience with stiff goldenrod hasn't has been that it actually, you know, in a planting where it's with other species that are doing well, um, it just um, settles down, and it doesn't, um, you know, it's not like the it's like the individual plants aren't as um, as long lived, and so. You know, it seeds, but in a in an established area, you know, where the vegetation is kind of thick, it it doesn't uh, take over. Um, not like Canada goldenrod. So, um, you it might be. It's hard to say, but it might be that the management um, of disturbance. I mean, I get the idea of of getting the seeds off of it. You know, so that you're you know mowing it earlier, so it sets it back a bit, and the other plants have a chance, but. Um, it could be that maybe the burn, it, you, how often do you burn it? Uh, as often as I can. But okay. usually uh, once, uh, I, I just a couple of years ago, I did my first fall burn, which is a completely different beast. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, I would say these fields get burned on an average at least every three years. Okay. No, that sounds like a good frequency. Yeah, I just say mix mix up your management in terms of frequency of burn, uh, areas burned, uh, areas mowed, and maybe try some. You know, basically like what I'm suggesting with a with a short mowing and and seeding that in the fall for germination next spring would be just to um, create some like little maybe little nursery beds, if you will, around in the area and see if you can get, generate some more diversity out of those. Yeah, uh, it makes uh, sense to me. Mark, uh, good luck. Thank you very much uh, for calling. Appreciate great project. it. Yeah, great project. And you have some, you have a lot of experience in this area yourself, Susan. Well, <laughs> well, the gardening level, the gar- there's kind of two <laughs> levels of, of activity. And one is the, you know, the gardening, at the gardening scale, you, there's things that you do that are, 
different than you do at the restoration scale. So for sure. Uh, and, and, and then the, the behavior of the plants, I mean, just experience of like how they, you know, how they kind of come and go. Um, another suggestion for, for Mark or really anyone else who is using plants uh, that are hemiparasitic, um, another suggestion of species would be the northern bed straw. It's a tiny, it's a, it seems like a really small plant, but it, it is a, um, it's a hemiparasite. So that just means that it taps into other plants' root systems and it doesn't kill them or anything, but it suppresses them like the betony or the, um, or the paintbrush. Uh, and those can be notoriously hard to get started, but if you've got the plant and you can if you've got some plugs and you can plant them, then it will start spreading on its own too. So those are, those are some good ideas that they, that, that he has. Alan in River Falls, it's your turn. Hi, Alan. Hi. Say, I was talking to an amateur naturalist uh, recently and we were talking about monarch butterflies and we talked, of course, about milkweed, but then he talked about another plant that he thought was particularly desirable for monarchs. And the name of it was something like Moonstrike Meadow. And I'm, I'm making that name up. It was two words, and I think the second word was meadow. Okay, and I'm wondering I, I what got you can it. Tell <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, so um, the, the thing about monarchs that we, uh, we need to remember is the milkweed is so important because uh, that is the food for the caterpillars. So Monarchs can only lay their eggs on milkweed, and it can lay it on different kinds of milkweed. We have 12 different kinds here in Wisconsin. But, um, so they have to lay their eggs on the milkweed plants, and the caterpillars have to eat milkweed. But once the butterflies are, are, ha are hatched and they come out and fly around, the butterflies actually don't – they can feed on milkweed um, for their own nutrition, but they also feed on – all kinds of other plants and milkweed only grow, only blooms for a short time in the summer so they need they need nectar from other plants you know all the way through the summer from the time they get to Wisconsin which is usually around mm, the third week of May uh, all the way until even into September there may still be some migrating south to Mexico so what the plant that I'm pretty sure uh, they were talking about is called uh, Meadow Blazing Star, and it's just one of the most, uh, it's a good nectar source. It is a type of blazing star, so it's actually in the um, sunflower family, although it doesn't look like a sunflower. It's got purple flowers, uh, but that is one, for some reason, that I don't really know all the details of, uh, the nectar of that is particularly appealing to the monarch butterflies, and they gather on the plant, and they stay on the plant, and they uh, they cluster on the plant, and they just love the nectar of that plant. And when would you plant that? Uh... You can plant it, uh, well, if you have plants of it, you know, we, like we've purchased it before and had plants on hand. It doesn't, it's not really crucial when you plant it. Um, you know, usually you get it in a pot, so you could plant it right away. Uh, if, you know, if it's too hot that day, you can wait you know, until it cools off a bit to, you know, give it a good, good head start in your garden. Um, but it, it can be planted, um, anytime. And then just, uh, the, it's blooming now, uh, it would be blooming at this time of year and the seeds would be produced in a few weeks. And when the seeds are ready, they'll be 
fluffy and um, they're wind dispersed. So they have fluffy little, you know, fluffy attachments on the seeds. And then once those, once you can see that fluff on the plants, then that's a good time to harvest them for, you know, if you want to plant them in a certain area, they will, um, I'm quite sure they need the winter cold moist treatment. So if you plant them in your garden and bare soil, a bare, bare soil that's been prepared, then you'd plant them in the fall and um, then you'd have them go through the, they would go through the winter naturally. And then in the spring they would germinate. And the, the germination, the seedlings of Blazing Star um, look like a little needle-like leaf. It's just one little, like there's two little <laughs> codlings and one little vertical leaf. So they're very, they're distinctive, but they're, um, they're small. <laughs> they're very small and you might mistake them for like a grass or something almost. They're that, uh, that kind of little spike. So um, it's sometimes fun to put those, if you've collected some meadow blazing stars or other blazing star seeds, put them in a tray, like a pot, uh, pots in a tray and plant them in there in the fall, then cover that with a screen and leave it outside. And then in the spring, you'll know that your little seedlings are, you'll know what they are. Ah, very good advice. Alan, there you go. Thank you so much for calling. Appreciate your call. Uh, let's see. Susan in Adams, uh, Wisconsin, your turn. Hi, Susan. Hey, Larry and guests. Um, we live on the Wisconsin River south of Castle Rock. And 20 years ago, we had a restoration river rock, a restoration on our riverbank. And we've got 15 feet of riprap, and then we had 15 to 20 feet of barrier. Um, we planted a seeding uh, from Prairie Nursery in Westfield. Mm -hmm. Our neighbors did not. They planted crown vetch, and it's meandering <gasps> its way south to our house. Oh. Now, it's got a great root system, and it's good for pollinators, but it's very invasive. Do I spray it and get rid of it and start all over? Do I... What do I do? Well, um, uh, it, it it depends on the extent of it. We I had crown vetch actually come into one of our prairie gardens here. I think it was it, the seed was in the fill soil that was you know originally used to grade the slope, and it took about eight years or so. But pretty you know after that time, I started to see some crown vetch in there. It was already now you know planted as a prairie garden, but. The crown vetch is very hard to get rid of. Um, we do most of our plant, you know, most of our weed control with hand weeding. That one we we just, you know, after a point you just can't you can't do it with hand weeding, especially amongst other plants that you want to keep. So what we have done is uh, spot spray it. Our crew, um, you know, our crew that is certified in uh, pesticide application and they come through and just use a very limited spot spray on it uh, with a legume specific um, herbicide. And that has been very effective, you know, amongst the other plants, it doesn't damage, uh, you know, the other plants around it. And that, you know, we do it, we, we had to do it a couple of times, but you just keep ever vigilant about it. But if you've got a whole, slope of it next door to you, that is going to be a ongoing <laughs> challenge because it is, you're right, it spreads by rhizomes, so it works its way, you know, from where it's growing to other areas, and it's very uh, adapted to, you know, disturbed areas and 
and it can intersperse with other plants and then, you know, kind of just get bigger and bloom and set seed and make more rhizomes. So it, it, that's a very challenging problem, but I, I don't think there's a way other than, um, you know, spot spraying it. And perhaps, I mean, maybe your neighbors could be um, convinced to try a different approach to um, it. I know that's a big project and sometimes can be a difficult conversation to have, but uh, that's really all I can recommend on that. Yeah, there's. I mean, I was trying to think of some barrier you could lay down between the two. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. uh, underground barrier. Yeah, it just this really depends on the situation. If it, and there's riprap involved, it might be, you know, pretty difficult to, you know, to make that division between the sites. Yeah, yeah. So you got an issue there, Sue. <laughs> Thank you very much for I calling in. Good luck. Out. Yeah, hope it works out. Kathleen and Madison, your turn. Hi. Yeah, hi. Well, I've moved, Larry, and I now um, am in Lacrosse. Oh. And around me, folks love rocks. So instead of gardens, I have rocks everywhere around the sidewalk, in the front, by the foundation, and I've been trying to dig them out, and it's it's going to take me probably years unless I can pay five thousand dollars for excavation. So, what can I if I get a, some of them out and get down as far as the four inches where the landscape fabric is? What can I throw in there for a seed? I was thinking like a, a coreopsis, and but what kind of grass? I think I read prairie grass seed might work. I don't know. So. You have uh, a layer of landscape fabric, and then there's rocks on top of it. Yeah, for and the layer sounds like it's four inches down. Yeah, well, you know how the land the landscape fabric migrates down with yeah. the dirt, right? Well, and then the, mm-hmm. so I, and they didn't even put it down in sheets; it's, it's like in strips. So I'm <laughs> I've been working on one area for it took me like four hours, and I don't even have it cleaned out, and that's like four feet. Mm-hmm. So I need something down because I'm going crazy without being able to plant. Yeah, well, it's challenging to. I mean, I think there there might be. It's so basically what what's created there is a very dry. It's kind of a dry area. Then, All right? Would you describe it as kind of like a rock garden almost situation? <laughs> um, you know, it's really good soil here. Amazingly. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. it, it is it's not a lot of sand. But mm-hmm. I think whatever is really hardy will grow. Mm-hmm. Um, I just I, I just don't know what can get the roots down deep enough that can yeah. reach you know further. Yeah. Oh, I mean it's kind of I mean I I hate you know like it sounds like you know if we if we could only snap our fingers and have your your site prepared because I you know I hesitate to like encourage. Uh, planting into something where, you know, later then you might decide that you want to tear the whole thing out again because now the roots will be holding the landscape fabric in and the rocks will be in the way still and everything. Uh, but if you have, basically, if you're, if you, if you, if it is not a continuous sheet of landscape fabric and you feel that it's, you know, it's aged and it's kind of torn or whatever, that, it, that roots could grow through it and you're just wanting to pretend that it's, you're, prepared already for it then if it's a dry area you might look at um you know look at plants that go well in a in dry is it is it sunny is it a sunny area 
right now it's dappled, but I'm going to be okay. trimming the tree. So it's, okay. It's, you know, so like, I mean, you I mean, just again, I'm you know, my idea is just you know, matching the the plants to the site is the most important thing we can do. So if you can find a you know, like a a seed mix. It, this I'm just suggesting a seed mix because the seed mix would, if you can get a seed mix that's tailored to your site, you don't need to plant those seeds. But what you could do, you could plant them. But what you could do is look at that list of plants that is suitable for that type of site and use that as a guide for trying some of the plants. And you could try a few and see if they make it. You know, so you could get your planting fix and then, um, and then if they work fine if they don't work then you're back to excavation or you know a more gradual approach to excavation than than you've been having to do so far yeah i like the excavation idea <laughs> <laughs> i know uh, it's expensive but um... i mean I, i'm used to gardening in an area that like uh, you know part of our garden here at the arboretum is is gardened right over a an old roadbed and some of it's gardened over a gravel parking lot and you know yet the plants do fine so i'm 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 mixed. I have mixed feelings about going all the way down to whatever, <laughs> whatever's underneath all that. Oh, good luck, Kathleen. Thank you so much for calling. Appreciate it. Susan Carpenter, our guest, native plant garden curator at the UW Madison Arboretum. I'm Larry Mueller for Garden Talk on the Ideas Network. You're listening to Garden Talk on the Ideas Network. Larry Mueller here with my guest Susan Carpenter of the UW-Madison Arboretum, talking native plants with Susan. And you can join in at 800-642-1234, or you could email us to ideas at wpr.org. Give a call. We'll get you on pretty quickly. Let's go to Nancy in La Crosse. Hi, Nancy. Good morning. I had a question regarding Solomon's seal. I have a native prairie uh, area, 50 yards by 30, I would say. In just the last two years, this plant has popped up and identified it as Solomon's seal, which wasn't too bad looking, but then I read that it is toxic to humans and pets, and so now I'm trying to get rid of it, and I don't really want to use chemicals, so... I was wondering if I continue to keep cutting it back when I see it come up, if that would eliminate it. Um, well, it, as you've noticed, it does, uh, it, it does reproduce in two ways. One is by seed. And so I just want to make sure I've got the right identification. The plant, when it blooms, it has, does it have flowers underneath each, at each leaf? you know, point like that hang down underneath the the stem? Uh, navy blue berries. Yes, navy blue berries. Very good. So that is one way that it reproduces is the birds and also little, probably little um, chipmunks and, and so on gather those and birds eat them and then spread the seeds around. So it does spread by seed is maybe how it got there in the first place. Uh, and then it does spread by rhizome, so underground it can spread from you know, one plant to the next. So um, if you continue to cut it off and just, you know, you're just just relentless about that, uh, it will probably, um, you know, that'll probably weaken it quite a bit, and eventually it might not, 
you know, come up anymore. But if you keep, you know, if you don't do it, you know, if you if you let it keep, you know, if you let it re-sprout or let let more of them grow, they could, you know, just persist over a long time. Um, they are eaten. I know here we have them in our garden, and uh, they are eaten by the deer as well. So uh, whole stalks of them will be gone. So uh, apparently they're not um, toxic to deer. Um, I, I guess when you first when you first mentioned wanting to get rid of them, my my suggestion would be if you don't have if you don't have any jumping worms, would be to put the word out that you have a bunch of Solomon seal that you don't want, and there will be other gardeners who would who would come and get it from you, you know, come and, 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 uh, you know, take, dig it out and (laughs) harvest it and take it to their gardens because it's a very wonderful, um, you know, garden plant. I mean, a highly desirable garden plant. Um, you know, it is just kind of just showing how when we have a lot of something or we, you know, just happen to not like it, even a perfectly great garden plant that lots of people would want is not desirable for us personally. Um, so I guess that's the case for you, Nancy. But if you do, if you are connected in a gardening uh, community at all, or if you have a, a Wild Ones chapter nearby in La Crosse, I'm not, I don't know anyone directly there, uh, but you could get in touch with them and see if there were people who would want to come in and uh, take it off your hands. Yeah, there you go, Nancy. And speaking of wild ones, Julie, who is part of Northwood's Gateway chapter of wild ones, emailed, they have two oaks near the pollinator garden in Antigo near the walking path. Uh, The Bramley bushes that were on the oak's footprint were removed, and whoever did that also pruned some of the oak's branches. Mm -hmm. They're now worried, uh, they're worried, can we paint those areas? She knows it's not recommended for other trees, but the oaks are now going to be vulnerable to oak wilt. Um, They were just, so they were, I gather they were just pruned just now you know like recently sounds like it okay so yeah the i the idea there is we don't um we don't prune um between march and october on the oaks unless there's some like safety reason or uh if it's dead wood um you know and there's a safety problem like we've had that sometimes here uh we we can uh clip those off but um I don't think it's recommended to seal the wounds um, uh, generally, so I would recommend not. But just in case, I would have asked Julie, if she's listening now, to um, email our, our tree and shrub expert here at the Arboretum. His name is David Stevens, and uh, his email is on our website, but it's also just david.stevens at wisc.edu and ask him that question about the this particular example um i think the recommendation will be don't paint it over but um you know if it's already been cut they're already you know that's probably already the plant is already probably sealed it you know sealing it off so it won't make much difference at this point yeah i i know and on some occasions uh depending on the time of the year the, the there have been recommendations on the program to actually paint mm-hmm. uh, the oaks but uh it'd that's, be worth it'd be worth yeah, that's it. why i'd have david chime in on it because he will definitely be a great source of information for that yeah for sure cindy and eau claire uh it's your turn hi cindy hi there um i'm just want to uh make a recommendation to my fellow pollinator gardeners that 
if we're going if we're going to get um, plants for pollinators, we want to make sure that it's safe for them. And many plants, unbeknownst to many people, are actually treated with systemic pesticides, meaning every cell in that plant, including the nectar and pollen, uh, has an insecticide in it. It would sort of be like inviting your family for dinner and lacing the food with strychnine or quinine. It's hard to know whether those plants have been treated with systemic pesticides. So the most important thing that we can do when we go to our garden centers and nurseries is to say, I'm interested in native plants for my pollinator garden that have not been treated with systemic pesticides. Very good point, Cindy. That's a very that's an excellent point. And uh, so, checking with the source uh, sources of plants, I, of course, the native plant nurseries um, will have it right. You know, they'll have it front and center that they do not treat their plants in production. Uh, so that's a, a good safe source. But you're right. Any other garden center or nursery that you're working with, um, you may want to, you definitely want to ask that question and make sure that the plants that you're buying are going to um, be a good source of nutrition and a safe source of nutrition for the pollinators that you're trying to promote. Yeah. Very, very great point. Thank you for making that, Cindy. Yeah, thanks, Cindy. Appreciate it. Uh, Mark emailed to ask what you think of blue cohosh as a plant for a native garden. Um, I think it's a very good um, plant for a native garden. It's a it's a beautiful and very striking plant when it first comes up in the spring. It comes up during uh, spring ephemeral time, and it comes up kind of purple colored, and and all you know, like the, the leaves and and stems are all very small, and then it just kind of expands into its uh, green color. It blooms early when the spring ephemerals are blooming, but it stands a little taller than most of them. And then it has uh, the berries on it later in the later in the season. So uh, that would actually that that's actually a good woodland plant. So if you have a mesic a mesic woodland, that would be a good plant to add into it. Yeah, Eve mentioned the prairie drop seed. Um, that she writes that some people are very sensitive to the scent of flowers in late August, early September, and to them the plants really stinky. Yeah. I, I've got a little a little tip on that that's kind of over the years I've kind of come to it with different visitors and, and gardeners that I work with or volunteers that I work with here. So it turns out that the, the smell, if you, if you like cilantro or you don't mind cilantro, uh, you'll probably like the smell of it. And if you hate cilantro, if that smell bothers you, then you will not like it. That's, that's <laughs> the connection we've made so far. So if anyone can add to that, I'd be gra- glad to hear it. But <laughs> if you don't like cilantro, you might want to skip that plant. Susan Carpenter, native plant garden curator at the UW-Madison Arboretum, our guest. I'm Larry Mueller for Garden Talk on the Ideas Network of Wisconsin Public Radio.
You're listening to Garden Talk on the Ideas Network. Larry Mueller here with my guest, Susan Carpenter, native plant garden curator at the UW Arboretum. As we talk with her, I hope you'll join in. What native plant questions do you have? Give us a call. The number is 800-642-1234, or send an email to ideas at wpr.org, ideas at wpr.org. Susan, we have an email from Adam. He has uh, purslane beginning to show up, or it began showing up a couple of years ago, has since spread to spots all over the yard, only seems to set up where there's bare ground or sparse areas, but wondering if he should be concerned about it taking over and make, and should he make re- efforts to remove it? Well, purslane is an annual plant, so uh, what he's probably got, and it can only grow where there's open space. So um, a few options are, and it, it's not, um, it, some people um, like to use it um, in the same way the previous uh, caller mentioned dandelions. They uh, actually eat it. Um, it has nutritional value, but uh, most people find it uh, just germinating in the middle of the summer. It doesn't It doesn't show up until about into late July or early August, then it germinates and starts growing really fast and creating its seeds, and it stays very low to the ground. It's just uh, kind of like a a ground cover almost, but a a very short ground cover, and has a fleshy leaf, so people, a lot of vegetable gardeners are really familiar with it too, Um, and uh, so it produces a lot of seeds, and it produces them pretty fast and then the seeds are just waiting there for another time when there's you know for the next year when it comes to that time of year again and there's enough moisture for them to germinate so it does pretty well in dry conditions hot conditions um sunny obviously full sun conditions um i don't think drought bothers it very much it's kind of a succulent type of plant um so the suggestion that i would have if if the area if you want the area to be growing something else. It, it won't take over from existing plants. It can't. It can't take over an area where there's taller plants growing. Um, but if you do want something to compete with it, then the thing to do would be plant some plants in that area that are uh, are taller and will maybe pre- be perennials. So an annual always needs open space, and perennials don't give annuals very much open space over time. So if you can plant um, maybe other I don't know mm-hmm. what the area is. If it's lawn or if it's a, a garden bed or something like that, then, um, then, you know, maybe you'd want to plant some more plants in the garden bed to kind of take up the space that the uh, purslane is using. Um, you know, the yeah. open, take up the open space that the purslane is using. <laughs> Nancy in Appleton emailed. She has a woodland garden. Uh, what are ex- some examples of flowering plants that are high value for pollinators? but that are more deer and rabbit resistant. She's not asking for a lot here. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in the woodland, okay, well, I mean, I I can probably, I'll make some suggestions for plants. I mean, one of the things for pollinators in the woodland garden is that really spring is the most uh, common time to find flowers in the woodland garden because, um, that's when the spring, you know, the spring ephemerals are up and, and more plants bloom in the spring in the woods. But in the summer, not so much. So I'll make some suggestions of plants that I find 
uh, that grow well in our our wood woodland garden here, and we have tons of deer, so I know that they can make it even in light of a lot of deer. So these plants would include um, shorts aster, which is an aster that blooms a little bit later than this time of year, um, and uh, so shorts aster. Also, um, the zigzag goldenrod might be a possibility. That one is a small goldenrod, uh, about a foot or 18 inches tall, and is yellow flowers, um, but it's not going to, like, take over the whole area. It will spread by rhizome, but it won't take over the whole area in your woods. So that one's a possibility. Um, there are some larger plants that might make it depending on how shady it is or if she has an edge. So maybe uh, Joe Pieweed, uh, if you want a big, a big tall plant that blooms at this time of year. Another good one that's blooming at this time of year is called the um, American Bellflower. Mm. And that's important to, to distinguish the American Bellflower. It has blue flowers and it's, it's a biennial, so the first-year plant looks very nondescript, but the second-year plant has a nice tall stalk, three feet tall or so, and beautiful blue flowers along the stalk. So those would be some suggestions I would have for the woodland setting uh, for blooming at this time of year, which is kind of when our woodland woodland areas don't have many flowers. John's wondering, what are some good resources for native plant seed? Um, I think the best uh, one uh, suggestion I kind of made earlier, uh, one really great thing to do is to look at some of our native plant nurseries uh, at their websites or catalogs, depending on which w format you like better, and uh, and look into, like, as I suggested before, look into some of those seed mixes that would be appropriate to your site. They have a lot of seed mixes that are customized to like shady, dry areas, sunny, dry, sunny, wet, you know, all the different possible combinations, you know, detention ponds, um, septic tank, uh, you know, mixes and just all kinds of different situations. So if you find a seed mixes that match the situation that you're thinking of, and um, then you can look at that seed mix and kind of pick out some, you know, there's, there's a lot of species in that seed mix. And there might be some plants that you would want to try, you know, growing from plants or, you know, starting from the seed mix if you want to go that direction. But the seed mixes can be serve as kind of plant lists for you. Makes good, uh, makes good sense. Weeding, we, and weeding's kind of come up, but it, it is important, is it not, to continue weeding a native garden throughout the season? Well, we um, we find we, we we do find that we get plenty of chances to weed, and uh, but the interesting thing is about our native gardens is of course we've we've had some of our gardens here at the arboretum now for we we initially planted them, uh, you know about 15 or more years ago. So what's happened in those areas is the native plants have done well. They've of course um, some new things have come in. You know, new natives have come in. Um, some plants have kind of dropped out of the mix because they're not the kind of thing that persists with a lot of competition from other plants. We usually find that the weeding happens at the edge of the garden now. So mm -hmm. we go in, um, we might, we might just go, uh, we, when we're edging our gardens, um, 
of course, the disturbance is there at the edge. The weeds are coming maybe from the lawn or, um, you know, moving in from the lawn or they just get established at the edge because there's always a little bit of disturbance right at the edge of the garden. Um, sometimes we have disturbance within the garden and then we see some changes there. Like we had a woodchuck um, dig a big excavation in, <laughs> in the middle of our rain garden. And then suddenly we saw a whole patch of spiderwort <laughs> blooming there. And spiderwort had been planted originally in this rain garden, but had kind of you know, become a, a, a minor component. Uh, turns out that it loves disturbance. So the woodchuck um, excavation was it is an is now a complete patch of um, of spiderwort. We do manage a lot of the native species now as well. I mentioned Canada goldenrod earlier, and yeah. Canada goldenrod is a, a native species. We never planted it in our garden, and we. Um, we don't like to see it taking over small areas because it does, it's tall, it spreads by rhizome, it seeds a lot, and it kind of be, kind of takes over suppressing other plants. So we literally pull it up at different times and we keep areas relatively free of it. We've learned a lot about when it gets ready for winter. It gets ready for winter with its um, new rhizomes heading out from the plant of this year, uh, in, in usually in July. So by August, it's pretty much ready for winter with its new buds waiting to go. And then it starts to uh, get to bloom time, just starting, few starting to bloom now. So you kind of learn a little bit about the plant as you're trying to manage it and kind of just, you know, keep it from, keep it from getting too predominant in a small area. Michael in Wauwatosa will give you a chance. Hi, Michael. Hello. Uh, I've got the radio out in the garden while I'm listening to your program, planting my late-season greens, and I've got about four-foot aisles between my rows, and last year uh, a marsh marigold, um, not marigold, I'm sorry, marsh milkweed or swamp milkweed sprouted, and I let it go. Um, and I started getting this pollinator that I wanted to mention to you that's just, I think, is fantastic. I looked it up. It's called the Great Black Wasp. Yeah. It's, it's about an inch and a quarter long, um, and it is just beautiful. It's got blue iridescent wings, and it's very docile. And yes. while I was planting, well, I let that one go last year, and I didn't get to the seeds soon enough, and then all these milkweeds sprouted in the row, so I let them go. So I was planting while these great black, black wasps and monarchs are flying around me and honeybees and so forth. <laughs> and I just had to call, and I wanted to <laughs> test to see how docile they were. So I tested to see if I could pet their wings. And I know that sounds strange, but I was petting their wings <laughs> while well, they that, were um, working on the flowers. Yeah, they, they are at the flowers, uh, visiting the flowers to nectar, and they they do they they are very. Um, I, we find them a lot on the uh, mountain mint, which produces a lot of nectar, and they are very docile. They're they look intimidating because they're very large, and their name completely describes them: the great black wasp. Um, and they are, but the thing to remember about them is they are solitary. Uh, wasps. They don't live in colonies, and that's why they're docile. So they are simply uh, going about nectaring to feed themselves. When the females are laying eggs within that species, they provision the eggs with insects instead of with uh, nectar. 
with a pollen. So they're not collecting any pollen on the flowers. They're just getting, uh, they're just getting their, um, their nectar for their own feeding. So yeah, wasps, um, you know, if you have a, a, a colony of wasps or um, yellow jackets or anything like that, you, you've got, you don't have uh, docile insects around <laughs> you, but, but the uh, great black wasps, the golden digger wasps, many of the wasps are solitary and they will not sting you or bother you no matter how scary they look. <laughs> Michael, thanks a lot for yeah, calling. Yeah, great, great story. Yeah, a wonderful story. Thank you. Uh, Mary in Iowa, your turn. Hi, Mary. Hi. Um, thanks for taking the call. Um, I, we have uh, a woods that is being, the ground cover is being taken over by uh, Virginia creeper. And we also had one area that had a beautiful, huge patch of uh, wild ginger, and it just disappeared, totally disappeared two years ago. Hmm. And I was wondering what would cause that, and uh, is there anything you can do to slow the Virginia creeper down? Mm. Well, uh, Virginia creeper is a, as you're learning, it, it can make a great ground cover, and also it can vine up, uh, you know, straight up trees and buildings and whatnot um the ginger i'm not sure about a lot of times it, i don't know what your um, climate situation was you know your temperatures and uh moisture that year that it disappeared uh sometimes if uh, sometimes in drought situations those will um you know patches of that will you know not be able to to thrive um so that's a possibility. I, I don't know, you know, your, your particular situation there. Uh, they are usually, we find the wild ginger is um, distrib- dispersed. The seeds are dispersed from those little flowers that lay along the ground um, by ants. So we'll find the little seedlings like far away out of the woods, like out in the open, away from a wild ginger patch. So you might look around and see if you've got other patches um, starting up in other places. I I hope you do um, so that you didn't just lose all of your wild ginger on the Virginia creeper. um, If you have it, you know, if it's, 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 it's going to be, it's going to be a battle as far as I can tell. Um, You know, it is a native plant and it's a, it's a good ground cover in the absence of other plants that would be more desirable to you, you know, or other woodland plants. Like I, I hate to see it like taking over areas where you have, you know, known uh, other plants and you think it's choking them out. But in, as opposed to plants that are worse than it, um, I, I would, you know, I would say it's okay. Uh, you know, it, it does send out a runner like over, it's not, it's not reproducing um, the, you know, the first, the first attempt is a above ground stem that comes growing out from it. And same with the stems that go upward, you know, climbing on a structure or on a tree. So those are, they have little pads and they can start to root, but before they're rooting, you know, you can pull them back. Um, you can, you can just keep pulling the vines up and getting rid of them. I mean, I don't, you know, you have a wood, so I don't know how much of this you want to do. Um, it you know it'll keep growing and it'll keep expanding, um, but you're just you know you, you if you just want to keep it out of a, a certain area or something you know that would just be a like physical removal as far as I can 
could recommend. There you go, Mary. Thank you. Jerry in Kokana, your turn. Hi, Jerry. Yes. I have, I have like a little flower garden, traditional style that goes around the house, and I've had it planted in wildflowers, but through stun gardening techniques, um, basically I just have uh, grass growing in there now, and I want to be able to replant it. Um, do I just weed whack the grass out of there, or should I put some... Um, uh, weed killer to kill the the grasses and stuff, and can I plant right away, or do I need to wait till the spring? Um, just some ideas about that. Okay. Well, again, um, you know, the, around a house, there's, like, different zones. So on the north side of the house is usually more, more moist and, um, you know, uh, shadier and cooler and then on the south side of the house if you, you know if you're going all the way around or the west usually um even the east it could be uh, quite a bit warmer so it depends a lot on on the sun and the amount of shade you have do you have tree if you have trees nearby but if you think of each area as kind of its own thing like one clue is what does what's doing well there now. So the plants that are growing there that well in the area now, maybe some of the wildflowers are still persisting. Uh, is the grass that's growing there now just lawn grass? Yes, it's just lawn grass, and I was looking at just the south and west side. Okay, so that, that makes it a little simpler then. So a lawn grass has very, very small little roots. If you're, if, you're, if you're thinking about starting over, you know, completely starting over with the area, you know, in other words, you want bare soil as your beginning point, um, then you might want to, um, I mean, depending on the configuration of the area, how, how easy it is to work the soil and everything, you might just want to get that you know, get that get that turf out of there and get the plants out of there. Uh, whether you do that physically or whether you um, mow it, like weed whack it down to the ground so that it's just, you know, do that a couple of times so that there's nothing left. Um, you know, that might be an, that might be an option for getting started again. If you have plants that you like in there, then it's going to be a little trickier because the grass you know, is growing with them and that, that would be a little trickier. You can you know, probably you might not be able to hand weed that out or maybe you could. Um, we, we hand weed around the edges of our gardens here where the turf grass is going, you know, has, has grown in. And, and that seems to work. That seems to work pretty well. Um, of course we have a great crew of dedicated volunteers too. So <laughs> <laughs> that helps, but I would suggest, I mean, it kind of depends on what, if you want to save anything is remaining there or whether you are basically starting over as to which approach you'd use to prepare it. And then, um, and then just, if you have an, if you either create an edge where your I assume turf grass is coming up to the garden beds, or if you have an actual physical barrier there, that can be helpful to keep the grass from growing in there in the future. Cause the lawn grass does have rhizomes underground stems that'll just grow out, you know? And so if there's an empty space nearby, they'll grow, you know, they'll grow into that as well as, as you know, growing just to con continue to make a turf. Yeah. Jerry, thank you so much for calling. You mentioned volunteers, and uh, you have, there are always a lot of them at the Arboretum, but how can folks join in? Well, we have a, we have a lot of wonderful opportunities for volunteers here. Lots of 
there's the the gardens, but there's also one of our special things that goes all year round. And now that we're coming into fall, it's really pleasant. Uh, is our ecological restoration work parties, and those happen almost every Saturday morning at 9 a.m., and it's a drop-in program. So it's a really good chance to come out and learn uh, some of our native plants and, of course, learn some of our non-native plants that we're removing from our our prairies and our savannas and our woodlands. The next one is this is uh, August 19th, and then there's August 26th and September 2nd. Um, and those meet at different places, so just checking our website for uh, those locations would be the best idea. Um, we've also got uh, different um, volunteer opportunities within the Arboretum itself, like working in the bookstore or being a receptionist or being a volunteer, um, you know, being a volunteer in another capacity. And some of those things have seasonal trainings. Uh, some of them are seasonal, like um, my garden volunteers uh, only we, we work through September um, in the gardens, uh, but there's lots of opportunities. Well. I, so I'd recommend the work parties for sure. <laughs> Susan, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much for being with us today. I really appreciate it. Great Th to be here. Thanks. Susan Carpenter, Native Plant Garden Curator at the UW-Madison Arboretum. She'll be back and uh, we'll talk with her again. She does a great job, doesn't she? Uh, Monday, our physical therapists are back to talk about knee pain and meniscus problems. That's Monday starting at 11. In the meantime, uh, thanks for listening and stay with us. Lots more in store on the Ideas Network. I'm Larry Mueller. <laughs>